This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones. And with us in studio are some special guests. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, Huang Minvu, uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks. I'm really glad to be here at uh, this great Center for Southeast Asia Research. Ah, unsolicited praise. We will take it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and also joining me is, uh, is uh, Dr. Matt Yeagle. Hey, Matt. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. The, the last time Matt was on the podcast, we... Uh, we toured beers of Southeast Asia. We did. Um, this is a more during the day podcast. So we'll, <laughs> we're drinking waters of Southeast Asia. Uh, Correct. It's very clean. <laughs> this uh, is uh, right. Right. Uh, this is the daytime show. We we were excited about your your research, third in the China War and the making of uh, present day Southeast Asia, nineteen seventy five to to ninety five. Um, and you did a a ton of interesting archival research. Maybe tell us how you got. Uh, into the into the project itself. Yeah, so this project actually started when uh, I was still in undergrad. This this started as kind of my capstone dissertation uh, at the London School of Economics, and at the time, I I was very interested in is- issues of uh, Southeast Asian politics and, of course, Vietnam, where I came from. Um, but I didn't want to do, and I did very modern political history and diplomatic history, but I didn't want to go uh, more into the second Indochina War, which is, you know, it's just kind of overdone. Yeah. And so, um, and, and then I also looked around and it... I guess yeah. for listeners, the second Indochina War is what most Americans call the Vietnam War. Uh, yes, that, yeah. that, that is correct. Sorry. So I've... I've also been trying to change the terminology of these oh, a little bit because, of course, the, right. the term Vietnam War is very America-centric. And sure, right. And we call it the American War and so on. And, and of course, the Third Indochina War is uh, known in my country as you know, the border war or the war with China or the war with Cambodia. And, and the term is, is really, uh, I like that term because it, it encompasses both uh, the wars on the southwest border of Vietnam and and on the northern border with China, but also looks at it as not just a border war, but something that went much further uh, and went for much longer uh, over a decade. So, um, uh, sorry, back back to the question. Um, you know, I I also looked at how this war was not really well known and it's a little bit neglected. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, Matt, you're you've got a lot of students doing. Uh what the Americans would call the Vietnam War, do they know about the the Third Indochina War? Uh, they don't. I think. Yeah, I think in in the U.S. kind of in general, maybe there's more knowledge about the First Indochinese War just because the U.S. had you know a lot of involvement. Yeah. Um, you know, funding France, you know, up to eighty percent toward the end of, of that war and whatnot. And yeah, and it's kind of the what set the stage for U.S. actual troops on the ground. So there may be more knowledge about that war. Third Indochinese War is kind of off the map. I, w- I would say for. Probably, probably a least, lot of Americans. Um, yeah, it's ironic because of course the U.S. was very involved in both the lead up to to the war and in the resolution of the war, um, because of course the the American bombing, the secret bombing of Cambodia, 
was, as William Sharkers wrote, right, um, really critical in mobilizing support for the Khmer Rouge and also making sure. uh, the more radical branches of the Khmer Rouge become like more dominant in that movement, mm-hmm. and and that led to the the, the genocide that also engendered this this conflict between Vietnam and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. So so it's also related back to American policy. And then I talked at length about how the failure of U.S. Vietnam normalization also paved the way to war yeah. as well. So the U.S. is really right. quite involved in all of these processes. Yes. But um, and I want to talk to you about that. We'll come back to that um, yeah. l- later. I had some specific yeah. questions on that Sorry. actual topic. Your uh, your your research kind of poses three, I think, really interesting questions: the the story of how Southeast Asia comes to be, the story of the global Cold War, and then um, Vietnam's sort of self perception. So, give us a give us a snapshot. How does Vietnam look at itself? In 1975, obviously, the the it had just defeated the United States, a kind of a, kind of an amazing against all odds uh, a victory um, by many counts. Uh, what is Vietnam thinking in 1975? How does it look at itself? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, it was a very triumphal moment, uh, definitely for the Vietnamese, and they they had this idea that now that they had you know basically defeated the U.S. in in battle that. Um, anything else is possible because that was the hard part. The hard part was was behind us, yeah. Um, and that reconstruction would be really fast, and that um, we would develop at thirteen to fourteen percent per annum for it's a sustained growth of that magnitude, um, despite all the destruction at the end of the war. And um, you know, of course, the the victory itself, as we know, it's not so clear cut. Right. It's much more um, contentious in terms of the politics leading to that victory. Um, and and Vietnam definitely overestimated itself to a great extent. Uh, you, you mean off of its victory, it, it had come to maybe believe that it could... That these were easily achieved goals, or well, it, uh, I think the most important thing is the the communist government started to think of itself as being infallible. So mm. it um, the way that it right. treated, for example, the former officials of the South Vietnamese government, where it wanted to re-educate them, it was really trying to do so from a very paternalistic uh, perspective, as in you know we we know the answers and we really want to teach you. <laughs> You know, um, and and that that was the perspective with the South, but also in terms of where where it was, it saw itself as very firmly a part of the socialist world, right? So, uh, it, so its orientations are 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 where towards the Soviet Union? Uh, I would say it was uh, trying to balance between the Soviet Union and China um, in 1975, um, because both had supplied Vietnam massively during the war, and and you know the Vietnamese were, were grateful. Um, but they were also caught in this pattern of uh, being very reliant on foreign aid. And um, when the Chinese and the Soviets, but mostly the Chinese, were so reluctant to give Vietnam additional aid, or at least to the same extent after the war, um, they took it quite badly and uh, were not that understanding that China was going through very severe economic difficulties at the time um, with the uh, the Cultural Revolution it had just gone through. 
Um, and, and so that contributed eventually to the deterioration of relations. But Vietnam, what it was not oriented towards was Southeast Asia. I mean, Vietnam definitely wanted right, to... We, we think today of, of, of ASEAN um, being, you know, it's, it's, it's a reality, it's a, it's a, it's a political reality, um, but it was a very small bit player in the, in the region, and, and uh, in 75, Vietnam was not interested in, in ASEAN at all. Well, Vietnam was very interested in renewing relationships with, so establishing these re- bilateral relationships, you know, with, right. with all countries, five ASEAN yeah. countries. But ASEAN, the organization, it had thought was basically um, in its death throes because, as you know, CETO quickly went out of business completely. Right, the Southeast yeah. Asia Treaty the, Organization. Yes. And, and, and I guess for our listeners, what were CETO and, and ASEAN, what were they committed to do? Right. So, so these were Cold War era um, organizations that were uh, set up. Of course, they they are different, right? Um, CETO was um, supposed to be the Southeast Asian equivalent of NATO and the Baghdad Pact in the Middle East, which is a military alliance to contain communism, and that collapsed quite quickly because um, a lot of the members were not really so committed. For example, Pakistan was a part of CETO. And uh, there were only really two um, Southeast Asian members, which is Thailand and uh, the Philippines, uh, I think. And then later on, it, it might have expanded. Um, but um, it's, it's not... Um, and the U.S. heavily involved. Yeah, in yes, and the U.S. and New Zealand you know, were, right. were members. So it wasn't so... It was called the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, but um, it wasn't very representative of what was... Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, and it clearly excluded the socialist part of Southeast Asia. ASEAN was a bit more inclusive. It was founded in um, 1967, and it was the latest in a series of regional organizations that were first trying to resolve certain issues regarding decolonization between um, Malaya and Philippines and, and Indonesia, but it was also trying to be an anti-communist kind of coalition that was not a military alliance, so something more like the EU than than um, NATO, um, and and it was also facing very severe difficulties in 1975 because um, it had not really achieved anything. It was supposed to have both political and economic functions, but not until 1992 would there be um, a significant regional economic agreement uh, with the AFTA. Um, so until then, there was, in fact, there, I think there was one um, in like the 80s, but almost no progress on economics, uh, which is supposed to be the easy part. And mm-hmm. politically, it was not doing very well. So actually, the third in the China where I argue is uh, the one that really changed everything around. And it gave ASEAN kind of an issue to rally around and demonstrate um, its its capacities and to solidify its core principles, which are non-interference in each other's uh, affairs, no matter what the human rights records of, of each member country is. There's no suspension of members, as you see sometimes with the OAS or with Arab League, um, and also uh, no interference from outside powers. 
which the they were very worried about the Soviet involvement in Vietnam. You talk about the period of seventy five to seventy seven as the as the missed chance. Why why is this a missed chance in uh, the region? Well, for the the Vietnamese after the war, I mean, they they were very um, confident in the socialist system, but they also tried to because the wartime embargoes and non-recognition structures were dismantled in Vietnam from 1973 onwards after the Paris Agreement was actually able to normalize relations with a number of Western countries, a number of significant um, sources of investment and trade, uh, like Japan, France, and so on. Um, So this was... And, and Vietnam in 1977 promulgated this very liberal investment law for a communist country, which extended great protections to foreign investments in the country. They were clearly trying to diversify their sources. And um, Was this in tandem with their trying to shop for foreign aid? They thought that this would be a good yeah. um, companion policy to that? Yeah, I mean, foreign aid was, was forthcoming from some countries, including France and Japan, which the Vietnamese termed it to be reparations aid for previous wars. But I would not say that the uh, that aid was... And, and they got some aid from, from Australia and some from the Nordic countries, and notably Sweden continued to give aid throughout the 80s, uh, despite mm. despite the Vietnamese presence in Cambodia. Was it, ear, was it earmarked to food aid or anything in particular, or was it...? Um, so uh, during the 80s, the, there was a new embargo, essentially, on Vietnam for its involvement in Cambodia, and so only humanitarian aid was allowed. Okay. But humanitarian aid is very tricky. So, for example, if you're in a war zone, you have a lot of people losing limbs, right? Um, so humanitarian aid would allow for you to ship in a, a prosthetic leg um, that, you know, that, right. that would, but it would not allow you to sh- ship in a machine that makes a prosthetic leg. Now, I don't need to tell you that <laughs> shipping yeah. in a generic prosthetic leg is not very helpful to anyone. <laughs> then the machine would be called development aid. And and so it's it's a very weird category. And, and I this summer I was working in... Australian archives and actually the Australians tried to circumvent some of those embargoes in very interesting ways. But um, in any case, Vietnam was asking for aid, but the the thing that it was asking for most is actually trade. Um, and Vietnamese trade with Japan, for example, notably, it was around uh, $210 um, million dollars, uh, uh, bilateral trade in in 1976, whereas with the Soviet Union was around 300 million. So, and the Soviets were, were you know this, this the biggest trading partner. Mm-hmm. So actually, these these were quite significant numbers for Vietnam in trying to diversify itself. And the other part of the mischance is Vietnam's efforts at normalizing relations with the U.S. and and breaking that most significant of embargoes. Uh, and that came very very close, but. Um, both sides were really trying to circle, and, and the negotiators were influenced very much by domestic concerns and were not able to uh, negotiate with free hands. How, how, how close were the U.S. and the Vietnamese to normalized relations um, right after the war? Yeah, so Jimmy Carter uh, campaigned in 1976 
that uh, on the platform of, of a new American foreign policy that is different from the kind of immoral policy of Henry Kissinger. And, and one of his big goals is normalizing relations with Vietnam publicly stated. And so by March of 1977, two months into the administration, he sent a, a special commission, the Woodcock Commission, to Vietnam um, to start the process. The Vietnamese were very receptive. They had, I believe, three meetings, three formal rounds of negotiation in 1977 alone. Um, okay. And, and uh, the Vietnamese were holding out for $3.25 billion in, in uh, what they call reparations, which Nixon had promised um, uh, in a secret note in 1972, which uh, the U.S. Well, th- this is a kind of complex and deep issue, but the, the U.S. Congress actually caught wind of this. And and actually pass laws to make sure that to the prohibit. U.S. to prohibit any such uh, reparations from being allowed to be paid. Mm-hmm. And so the American negotiators, um, with all their goodwill, actually had their hands tied, and they told the Vietnamese that you should accept normalization without conditions now, and we'll give you the aid later. But the Vietnamese. Uh, and this circles back to my talking earlier about the wildly unrealistic economic goals really needed mm-hmm. this capital, especially since the Soviets and Chinese were so um, stingy after the war that that they just were unwilling to do it. And I have reports from the Vietnamese negotiators and the Foreign Affairs Ministry uh, back to the Politburo essentially saying, this is the best deal we're going to get. You know, um, I, we trust the Americans. Just do this, and they, it was not even possible. Um, in fact, the Vietnamese foreign minister Nguyen Zi Ching leaked a message to the Japanese, to the Americans, to say that I really want this to happen. There's some people in my Politburo hmm. preventing me from doing so. Hmm. So th- that was how he communicated with the Americans: this mm-hmm. uh, leaked message to the Japanese. How much? Because um, another another part of uh, Carter's foreign policy platform is the stress on human rights being, you know, an essential component to how, how the U.S. is going to uh, conduct its foreign policy. What kind of impact is, does that have in negotiations in the U.S. and Vietnam, the normalization? So it didn't have that much impact at the beginning, um, but you're absolutely right. It, it started to have more of an impact in 1978 when the refugee crisis hit um, new peaks, especially when relations between Vietnam and China started deteriorating. Um, and massive numbers of Chinese um, were were leaving Vietnam. Um, the U.S., I think it was in October 1978, started uh, to say that the ending of the refugee crisis is a precondition mm-hmm. to normalization, mm-hmm. um, which was the first time they mentioned that, and the Vietnamese were very upset by that. But um, I would say that throughout 1977, uh, that wasn't so much of an issue. Uh, re- re-education camps, all those things mm-hmm. uh, were not. The, the American perspective was that um, if, we norm- if we engage, if we normalize relations, then we can make those changes mm-hmm. slowly and we'll give aid slowly. But that didn't happen. Where are the Chinese in all of this in positioning themselves in this talk of normalization? Right. So the... The Chinese were m- much further along with the process, and there there was a sense in in the U.S. policy circles that um, by precedence they should come first because they've they've just been putting in more effort over a longer time. Mm-hmm. Um, within the 
uh, U.S. policy making circles, and this goes into kind of a bit complicated in depth. Um, the uh, Secretary of State Cyrus Vance was um, all about you know normalizing relations quickly with Vietnam. That was completely fine. Whereas uh, the National Security Advisor uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, he's the son of uh, Polish uh, intellectuals who, who were driven out by the Soviets and you know, has has a huge beef with the Soviets and and saw Vietnam as as a puppet, right. much of the and more hardline just in general. Uh, much more yeah. hardline, and he was much more towards you know making sure the Chinese get the precedence first. So that's all quite well known, but. The questions I've been raising, which I think go a little bit against the grain, is uh, against this this common perception that the Chinese didn't want uh, Vietnam and the U.S. to be relations to be normalized. In the documents that have been released, at least on the U.S. side, um, from from the Carter Library, where where I work quite extensively, um, the U.S. asked the Chinese on at least three separate occasions uh, between 1977 and. September 1978, whether the Chinese were opposed to normalization. And the Chinese each time said either that we like it, this is a good thing, mm-hmm. or that this is a matter for your two countries. I, I mean, this, this is not... Like, you can normalize with them and with us. Like, that's fine. Right, very interesting. Um, the yeah. Chinese never said, do not do it. Um, and, and in fact, it would be very much in China's interest if you think uh, geopolitically... If, if Vietnam normalizes relations to the U.S., it continues this process of diversification of aid and, and trade and, and would actually be a huge part in bringing Vietnam out of the Soviet orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Chinese, uh, to some extent, realized that. And that's why they, they never opposed it. Um, the, the, there is a very... The big, I think, debate is actually the meeting between Deng Xiaoping and, and Carter... Uh, in January 1979, when he came over for normalization talks. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that meeting, there were some public banquets, but um, Deng Xiaoping had a little note in his pocket. And during one of the meetings, Deng said, could we go into a very private room with you know, uh, only very few officials? No on cell side. phones allowed. No, no none allowed. <laughs> right. um, and Carter did this, and Deng Xiaoping came out with, with that piece of paper listing um, all the many reasons why he thinks that China should attack Vietnam. And in fact, it was not so much of a asking for permission as a we will be doing this kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. situation. So the Americans advanced have advanced notice. Yeah. Um, and, and Carter said, well, can I have a day to think about this and respond to you? And the, the next day he came back with his own list of reasons why China should not mm-hmm. invade Vietnam. So the Chinese position and the, the talking with the Americans, it, it doesn't seem like on the Vietnamese side, first they, uh, for a long time with the historiography, says that China did not want and push to discourage normalization between Vietnam and the U.S. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case. Um, and the Americans also did not encourage China to attack Vietnam or mm-hmm. give green light or permission. In fact, they tried to discourage it. What, what did emerge that was real from the American um, archives, and this circles back to the previous issue, is that Zbigniew Brzezinski, in his May 1978 uh, trip to China, when he reports back, said, um, 
a lot more. Like he basically, he could not quote the Chinese saying that, you know, don't normalize relations with Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But he basically, in his report, drew conclusions for the Chinese, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. He, he was not dishonest enough to say that the Chinese actually said this. But he said, okay, this is what the Chinese said. The way I interpret it is that the Chinese don't want normalization with Vietnam. Which if you read in close what the Chinese say, it's not at all what they said. And of course, this is none of this is happening in a vacuum because uh, maybe give us some insight. What what is happening to overseas Chinese in 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 Vietnam? Right. So in the late seventies. Right. So Vietnam um, militarily unified in nineteen seventy five in 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 April, but it did not formally unify until um, December of nineteen seventy six. And even then, it maintained two separate currencies, North and South, until uh, May of 1978. So the Vietnamese were putting off these kind of essential steps to unifying um, the country uh, fully uh, until quite late. And so when they actually did it in May 1978, they must have felt, I think, that this was long overdue, that this was not some... You know, crazy policy. The other thing that they did uh, in early 1978 uh, is in March, they um, started nationalizing a lot of businesses in the South, which again is something they've always said that they would be doing. Um, but they delayed it until that time. But in, in early 1978, to be hit with those double whammies, the business community in, in Saigon, which as in many other Southeast Asian countries, um, was overwhelmingly Chinese or disproportionately Chinese, uh, felt that this was a discriminatory move. And and along with rumors that relations between Vietnam and China were going down the drain, and especially with knowing that the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese had been fighting for mm-hmm. some time, um, all mixed together to, to, to create a, a huge panic. Um, and and the Chinese state uh, started sending ships over to to essentially rescue them, mm-hmm. and the Vietnamese um, were very upset about that. We allowed the ships to actually dock and and take people. So th- this was uh, basically a, a, a very rapid downward spiral of relations. Yeah, it's interesting because you you talked about how com- coming out of the uh, Second Indochinese War that Vietnam is almost right at that time ready to kind of look to kind of get get involved like globally like right with trade or or, or whatnot right be be a player joins the imf that. Um, yes joins the imf in 76 i think yeah. yeah and then kind of coming on the heels of that in 78 like you're saying for, for chinese they're they're feeling like you're zapping this power out of this kind of merchant class in china which you know ha- heavily evolved in the vietnamese economy right so right. so is there a clash sort of there in those two yeah so i think for the vietnamese um a a trade-based vision you know uh, encouraging foreign trade encouraging foreign investment does not equate to encouraging capitalism i think they Mm -hmm. they were they were looking at um socialist production and um, nationalization nationalization right and 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 be able to produce um, you know yeah. the national targets for export and uh, encouraging foreign investment in you know 
certain sectors that they needed um, to develop to, to get foreign capital and technology. But I, I would not say that they saw the activities of the Chinese uh, or just in general the merchant class in Ho Chi Minh City in particular was was that contributive to this goal, which you might well be right was was a huge mistake on their part, right? Um, but but that was just you know, th- and this ties back I think again to this 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 overconfidence at the end of the war that you know socialism had all of the answers and that in a way the the Vietnamese had had learned this lesson before in the 1950s. I mean they had um, kind of overplayed their hand at nationalizing um, and, and land distribution and then had to backtrack a little bit. Um, but somehow in the euphoria of the 1970s, they were repeating the mistakes that, that they already admitted that they had made mm-hmm. back in the 50s. Um, and, and that is the tragedy. <laughs> is there, um, and I don't know the answer to this question, but we, we seem like we're getting like kind of increased tension as we had from 75 to 76 between Vietnam and China, uh, 77 to 78. Does the death of Mao in September 76 have any uh, impact on how maybe Vietnam sees uh, its relationship with China, how China is viewing Vietnam, um, et cetera? Uh, I think absolutely. Uh, The Vietnamese, um, Mao and Ho Chi Minh had a very, very good personal relationship. And uh, many Vietnamese uh, and, and international scholars st- still feel that you know there there cannot really be that much conflict between China and Vietnam, at least not open conflict, uh, if those two were somehow leaders. But Mao had really been out of Chinese politics before '76. Mm-hmm. You know, before he he'd really gotten that sick. Right. Anyways, symbolic um, though still. Right. So right. So th- I think that the big. The bigger impact is that his decline led to, um, you know, the, his replacement with the Gang of Four, and then eventually uh, the rise of Deng Xiaoping and and their defeat. Now, Deng Xiaoping is is a, a very kind of interesting figure um, because he's been through a lot of up and downs with the purges in China. And he did not start out, I think, to be overtly anti-Vietnamese. But he did have a certain idea of, of gratitude. And he felt very strongly that the Vietnamese were ungrateful for yeah. everything that China had done. And he, he uses these words a lot. Mm-hmm. In, if you see his interviews, he, he speaks with the Vietnamese with a certain vehemence. Like, you can tell from the voice, you know. Um, and and this is this is like I, I think beyond just rational calculations, right? It's th- there's a feeling uh, involved. Um, and Deng Xiaoping is also a very practical-minded guy. Very follows the realist school, yeah, uh, very much. Um, in part because of his own political struggles, I think. And so he, if you think ideologically, he he was the ideological enemy of the Khmer Rouge. He was the moderate, and they were they would be much closer to his political enemies in China. And in fact, they they criticized him massively when he first came to power. But he was willing to put that aside. You know, doing the you know a, a cat can catch a mouse, whether it's red, black, or white, uh, and and basically support the Khmer Rouge to the end um, because of his own strategic uh, objectives. 
and he he was the kind of guy who would do that. I don't know if Mao would have. So the obviously the the other elephant in the room is is Cambodia. Khmer Rouge come to power um, seventy five and and uh, w- tell us about what your research uncovers of the decision of the Vietnamese to in, to invade Cambodia eventually. Yeah, so I actually was missing a slide from from that presentation <laughs> um, because I've I've been um, coming across more interesting materials from from the Vietnamese side. So the the conflict. Um, the armed conflict between the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese started almost as soon as the war ended. Um, the, the Khmer Rouge started occupying some islands um, in in uh, late April, early May uh, 1975. They were already uh, going up there uh, to, to the disputed islands. Um, before France lost control of, of French and China, they had uh, most notably drawn something called the Brevi Line that that gave a very large island, which uh, I think is uh, the Vietnamese uh, word is Phu uh, Quoc, and the Cambodian word is, I want to say Co Trao. Yeah. Um, and and so the, the these were disputed islands, and, and the Khmer Rouge started occupying them immediately, and the Vietnamese uh, fought and removed them, at which point there were exchanges between the uh, general secretaries of the two sides and the Cambodians said that we they, they had bad maps, they, they lost their way, and so on. Um, and and you know, the, the Vietnamese were willing to let that slide, basically. Um, and um, but, but the Khmer Rouge renewed the attack in, in April of 1977. Uh, um, and and this time they they attacked on land on the land border and massacred uh, several Vietnamese villages in Tây Ninh and then later that year in An Giang um, uh, on the border provinces. What what would have I mean? It seems like a suicidal. Yeah. So to the Vietnamese, the, it it took a lot of time to understand because Cambodia was. Uh, at that time, about a tenth of Vietnam's population, it, it had a much, much weaker military, um, and so the Vietnamese reasoning was that somebody had to be telling the Khmer Rouge to attack, um, because right. there was no. So it ra- seemed irrational, like, right? Yeah. And and in my research, I I try to show that, well, you know, you're right. There is no rational uh, um, cause for attack, but you you cannot assume the guy who kills. One point something million Cambodians to be a very rational guy, you know, and and working off of that logic to say that <laughs> right, right. that you know, the Chinese were somehow behind it right, uh, without proper evidence. Now the Chinese were definitely supporting the Khmer Rouge in material terms, but uh, the the work of um, someone who was formerly on my committee before he moved to JSU, uh, Andrew Murtha and and uh, John Kosieri at at University of Chicago. These are Scholars who have done kind of extensive work on Chinese aid to Khmer Rouge, uh, interviews, you know, documentary research, uh, archival research, and and they say that um, you know actually the Chinese were always trying to pull the Khmer Rouge back, um, and the Khmer Rouge were the ones kind of eager for for a fight. Replicate the Grand Encore era uh, state if they can, and. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, is it is it true that Pol Pot wanted to make Cambodia great again? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know that that is, I think, for you know at, at the at the risk of overgeneralizing, that that is partly kind of the curse of Cambodia is to have had such illustrious um, uh, forebears who who created this amazing artistic you know cultural military empire and many generations later to to have kind of a lot of the, ch- the chip on their shoulder to um, politically uh, you know so today Cambodia it has territorial disputes with all three of its neighbors and in fact the Khmer Rouge a lot of people forget started out attacking Thailand and Laos before they even attacked Vietnam well actually well they attacked Vietnam and then Thailand, Laos, and then Vietnam again, right? Mm. But but you know they they were basically making war with everyone, right? And the border disputes are not you know they're they're going on during Sihanouk's era. They between you know the former South Vietnamese government and uh, you know U.S. backed uh, South Vietnamese uh, military, the Kapuchia Kram, uh, you know, Southern right. Khmer, uh, Free Khmer forces working for the U.S. both on South Vietnam and on the Thai border and. Uh, so it's it's something that's been going on for a long time. This is just yes. kind of uh, maybe a culmination of, almost of that. So right, and and I think it's it's disingenuous uh, of the Vietnamese side to to assume that the Chinese were were really the instigators behind what is a very long running conflict. Mm-hmm. So the so the Vietnamese invade Cambodia and and take over. Um, an interesting um, point that you bring up in your research is that um, have we overstated the role of UNTAC in getting Cambodia back on its feet? I think serious scholars um, realize that, and it's, it's just that the, the kind of convenient narrative. I think it, it might be, in, in fact, a, a product of just um, education that's not up to standard, where if you ask most Cambodians today, you know, where... You know the the prosperity, right? Where the uh, growth that Cambodia has been seeing came from, and if you look at kind of more um, uh, less less like academic programming and writing on Cambodia, they usually say, "Oh, since 1993, since the opening up of the country, since Ung Tak, right?" Um, and this inflow of international money, Cambodia has has then grown and become this this great economy arising from the ashes and I'm like well it is it is true that it has grown greatly since then but but go back even further right look at where Cambodia was in 1979 and uh, I'm not saying that there was a huge Cambodian economic miracle in like the 1980s because it was under so much pressure it was the country still at war it was still you know facing international embargo but um, look, a country that was on the brink of starvation in 1979. So, it, so the, the the invasion, the Vietnamese invasion, was a was a lifeline. Would you say? Oh, I, I think absolutely. I think absolutely. Um, it the, the country was very much on its knees uh, because of the Khmer Rouge's uh, genocidal policies. The Vietnamese, I I would not say invaded mainly for humanitarian reasons, but they their invasion had a humanitarian consequence. And um, in my reading again, particularly of the report 
uh, by something called the Group 77, which was formed by the Vietnamese in the wake of the renewed fighting in 1977. That's why Group 77. They took until January 1978 to come out with their report on what to do in Cambodia. They were asked by the government hmm. all those months ago. And in the report in January 1978, they stated clearly that Cambodia is now a massive concentration camp. And in addition to saying all those things about us needing to protect Vietnamese sovereignty and all that stuff, they said we need to support the patriotic Cambodian forces that are fighting against Pol Pot. And uh, uh, let me let me find the right language, uh, sure. the precise language sure, that they use. Yeah, so Group 77 uh, was formed um, uh, in in response to, to, to the Khmer Rouge attacks in 1977. Uh, and it was uh, just a group of uh, high-level Vietnamese government officials to research what to do. And what they the report only came out in January 1978, concluded that the Cambodian nation that's in the grips of a serious crisis, the people of Cambodia are currently living in a giant concentration camp. They outlined four yeah. key political goals, protection of our people, fight hard to punish the invaders who killed our people, recover lost territory, and undermine the plot to divide the people of the two countries. So those are defensive goals. But it also called for Vietnam to actively support, aid, and protect the patriotic Cambodian forces and true revolutionaries, uh, particularly helping the refugees who fled to Vietnam. And it also recommended that Vietnam pursue an offensive diplomatic push as we have the right to punish the invaders and murderers. And we are at an advantage diplomatically because we are righteous and humane. Hmm. Remember the word humane, right? So that was at least in in the in the thought world of absolutely of the motivation, right? Like people today who are saying, "Well, the Vietnamese invaded mainly for for you know selfish reasons." That is true, mainly for selfish reasons. But you cannot you you cannot you know say as a policymaker to to look at a country you know neighboring country that's going that's undergoing such a, a terrible genocide. For, for questions of humanity and humanitarian concerns to not cross their minds. And, and they wrote it down. Are they getting this information from um, refugees and from, you know, XKR that have fled, you know, uh, is yeah, that who's feeding it's so them hard this information? To know. Yeah. Well, so, so the Vietnamese uh, actually, so there are many different ways to cut off diplomatic relations, right? But the Vietnamese actually maintained an embassy in Phnom Penh until January 1978. That means those guys, and I interviewed uh, some of the guys who, who who remained in that embassy, and they said, "Yeah, we witnessed, you know, the clearing out of the city, and you know, all mm. the uh, all the terrible um, things." I mean, they didn't. I don't think they saw Tuong Slang particularly, but right. you know, they, they, we had a lot of spies in the country. Essentially, that that um, what a, what a wild story! Like you know, Phnom Penh, like th- as a, as a ghost town, right after like. But Vietnamese like, embassy yeah. <laughs> remains, yeah. And and um, the, the the defense minister at the time, Le Duc Anh, who eventually commanded Vietnamese forces in the country and eventually became president, wrote in his memoirs that um, when Viet- Cambodian refugees first fled to Vietnam in '75, according to international law, our Ministry of Foreign Affairs gave the order to turn them over uh, to the Cambodian authorities. Uh, and all refugees... Re- repatriated were executed, some of whom write on Vietnamese territory before our very eyes. 
and later we made the decision not to repatriate anymore, but instead give them food and look after them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, the Vietnamese cannot claim to not have known of the genocide. This is this is just not. Tell us about what you're calling the capitulation. So when we talk about kind of this, this again, building upon this is this question of the Vietnamese uh, intervention in Cambodia, right? It, for defensive purposes, but had a huge humanitarian kind of consequence. And especially after the Vietnamese had come in, they put a lot of effort into trying to rebuild the country and in trying to, to retrospectively justify the invasion as a humanitarian one uh, and, and to, to show that they were really trying to, to better the lives of people. In many ways, the, the invasion did end a, a huge genocide. Now, this invasion was opposed by ASEAN, was opposed by the international community precisely on this, on this point, which is that you cannot intervene in, in another state you know, no matter what its terrible human rights record. They all recognize that the Khmer Rouge were violated uh, of human rights. But, but they said this is the, the sacred international you know, principle, and particularly sacred in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. right, with the Zopfan Treaty in Zone of Peace, Freedom, and Neutrality in 1971 and the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation in 1976 are the two Southeast Asia-specific treaties that prohibited this sort of activity. Vietnam so, frames it as defensive, though. Vietnam, right. Vietnam had to because yeah. legally there was no principle back then mm-hmm. of intervention. But since then, we have now the responsibility to protect principle. That's, of course, still greatly under debate. Um, but in any case, the, the way I look at the capitulation is that Vietnam capitulated to this vision, to precisely this vision of um, a Southeast Asia, which is one that, yes, is economically open, is integrated, you know, is capitalist, essentially, but one that will not lift a finger no matter what the gross abuse of human rights is in the region. And and I, I blame this war very much for cementing these principles and making it pretty much impossible now for ASEAN to to intervene in you know cases like East Timor in 1999 or the Rohingya crisis today in Myanmar. So the these experiences under in the third <coughs> Indochina war kind of set a framework for what ASEAN can and can and can't be. So how do we get to um, the construction of the modern ASEAN from the capitulation? Right. So like I said, kind of towards the beginning of the podcast, which is that ASEAN was really in a very bad position in 1975. And if you look at um, all the writings and speeches by the ASEAN leaders, and pretty much every scholar today agree that this conflict was the big turning point. You know, the, the it gave the confidence back to ASEAN leaders. It gave them this important experience of of cooperating in in a, in opposition of a violation of, of of these principles. And in the end, it also broke the Vietnamese triumphalist narrative. And well, it bled Vietnam dry for one, right? Vietnam and Cambodia and put them in, in, in an economic position where they were completely dependent on the Soviet Union, um, which they were not at the beginning of this conflict. They were trying to avoid it, right? Especially Vietnam. But they became totally dependent on an on economic system and, and a, an empire that was collapsing. Um, and so it basically paved the way for their final capitulation. Well, in 1905, it was completed, but 
as early as, as the early 90s, the Vietnamese and Cambodians were starting to say, well, you know, we, we're going to have to start accepting a different order of things around here. And now Vietnam has kind of fully internalized these norms of ASEAN. And it has abandoned a lot of its socialist policies from before. And it's definitely completely abandoned. Well, I, I don't want to say completely, but at least temporarily abandoned its quest, I think, this this idea that it should intervene when there's a gross violation of human rights. I think some good evidence about um, that your your thesis that the, the Third Indochina War is sort of the making of um, ASEAN, the, uh, there's, these wounds are still fresh from this. Tell us about the um, recent heated exchange between um, Singapore and Cambodia. That's, that's, that's pretty telling. Yeah, so um, I think it's uh, 30, 30th of May of, of 1st of June uh, of, of this past year that um, in, in the wake of the passing of Thai Prime Minister uh, Prem, then uh, the, the, the Singaporean Prime Minister um, uh, Lee Sien Long uh, posted on his Facebook uh, his condolences and and also remembered Prem's uh, role in garnering ASEAN's unity and support uh, in opposition to to the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia, and in response, uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen of Cambodia, well, there, there were several Cambodian responses earlier, including that from his son Hun Mani, uh, but but eventually. Prime Minister Hun Sen himself wrote on his Facebook. Well, I, I want to quote this <laughs> correctly. So Hun Sen said that um, this that Lee Sin Long statement reflects Singapore's position then in support of the genocidal regime and the wish for its return to Cambodia. It's an act uh, against the survival of the Cambodian people, essentially. Right. So wow. so this is yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. very strong words for ASEAN leaders to each other, especially Pub- publicly you know, to very say that. publicly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And and on Facebook, it's not <laughs> you know, this is um, this shows really the the relevance of of these debates today. I think for a long time the Singaporeans could say things like this, and they have been saying things like this. You know, I did my high school in Singapore. I did it in the same school that produced Lee Kuan Yew and Go Chok Tong and. Uh, Lee Sien Long didn't want to go there because he didn't want to appear elitist, but you know it it, 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 it produced like a lot <laughs> right. of Singapore's diplomats and uh, military. And the things I was taught in school were precisely this. This was the view, right? And they've been saying this for for many decades. And I think now um, this might be very interesting. This this might be the start of some sort of challenge to this long-running narrative and these long-running principles of non-intervention uh, at whatever cost, right? Of course, we can err towards non-intervention, right? But it's the limit, right? Is that something that we're going to start to discuss? I mean, the, the and the geno- genocide is almost like a, a perfect case, you know, you might see in like a philosophy class, like, is it is it ever okay to lie? Like, well, you know, Nazis knock on your door and ask, you know, are you hiding someone in your attic? Like, right. okay, it's, you know, the, the genocide is like, Really, non-intervention in every situation, like even when a third of the population is being, you know, murdered, right. like that that exposes that kind of like it's it's a good idea, but in in the extreme case, right. and and you know in in Southeast Asia, we we all know that many of the governments are not anywhere near fully democratic. 
and <laughs> and and they are they are nervous. They're nervous about any sort of interventionism because they think that it could be used as an excuse for for outsiders to then yeah. you know intervene in domestic affairs. But I always say, well, you know, guys, the 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 standards are really like the bar is really low, though. <laughs> like like even if you're jailing journalists, even if you're like. Doing terrible, you know, environmental damage, like whatever you do, like you can go to Pol Pot Lane. So then, then, you know, and and we've come a long way from Carter. Like our foreign policy is not exactly being tied to human rights these days. In in, Norway's is, but (laughs) at least human rights in in conversation. Yeah, yeah, the U.S. is mulling today, uh, right now. Actually, the U.S. Congress is mulling sanctions on Cambodia over the 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 outlawing of the opposition. Um, but you know, I I keep telling people like this is not even remotely what we're talking about, like rigging elections or even dismembering the opposition. That, that, that's not <laughs> even kid stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, this is the murdering of millions of people. Like unless you're at that point, you don't have to worry, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, at that point, then you should worry, right? I mean, like that's you don't want to be there, right? Right. Right. Well. Um, Thank you so much for uh, coming into the studio. I neglected to say that uh, Hong is a, is a PC candidate at uh, at Cornell in their Southeast Asia program in history there. When can we? When can we, our readers get their hands on this in, in print? Oh, um, so I am uh, in hopefully my you know, knock on wood my final year uh, uh, of the PhD at Cornell. So um, I hope to graduate in in between May and August twenty twenty. Um, and uh, you know, if if NIU Press is willing to offer me a book deal, <laughs> uh, if, if that's an, an outstanding offer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be most honored. Seeing as you you are, um, you know, the imprint of, of of a lot of amazing Southeast Asia books. So. Well, let's talk off air. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, again, thanks for thanks for coming, and uh, well, uh, please come back again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for spending this time. Yes, thank you. Mm